Aloha, everyone. My name is Christina Lamy-Mitri, and I am your host for Smart Living Hawaii's podcast. And we definitely discover and jump on smart homes, technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today, we'll continue our Sustainable Leader Series, and we're going to have a talk story with Brittany Zimmerman. She is the CEO and Chief of Innovation at Yume. So, hi. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Christina. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Um, I am so happy to be chatting with you. Uh, she is on the Big Island, so doing some awesome work over there, and we're going to dive into that. But before that, I'm going to share a little bit about Brittany. Um, before founding Yume, Brittany served as a NASA principal investigator and aerospace systems engineer, developing life support systems for long duration, space flight and habitation. She has committed herself and her company to bettering the conditions of humanity and is implementing her multidisciplinary experience of space systems to make life support technologies easily accessible and affordable for terrestrial humanity, which is us, right? Yeah. <laughs> Brittany holds an MS in space studies with a focus on bioregenerative, physical, chemical, environmental control, and life support systems for long duration human space flight. That is a mouthful. <laughs> she has been recognized in her innovation and leadership in numerous areas, which we can dive into, but... Um, before that, let's talk about your background and where you grew up. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I grew up uh, in Wisconsin, so out with the cows and the cheese <laughs> and the cold, long winters. Um, so it's pretty different from where I'm at right now. But um, yeah, I went to uh, high school out there. I decided I wanted to continue college in that arena. Um, found a really nice private um, engineering organization um, that I did some internships with while I was going to school at the Milwaukee School of Engineering for uh, yeah for college and enjoyed it a whole bunch. Uh, after that, landed a job as an aerospace engineer out in Iowa. Um, lived out there for a while. Started doing some research that I thought was cool in my spare time, and eventually got asked. Um, to move out of the aerospace industry and into the outer space industry, which definitely was an interest of mine. So I decided I wanted to do that and made the big leap and got brought over originally to start looking at um, greenhouse modules. So how to design right our eating and our nutrient cycle um, systems specifically for lunar and Martian living. So there was a NASA habitat um, and started working on that. Um, yeah, it was very synergistic with my graduate uh, expertise through really bridging the gap between utilizing nature-based solutions and more traditional uh, engineering approaches like rotating machinery, chemical reactions, and those sorts of things, and figuring out how to leverage both types of architectures um, to mimic mother nature in a lot of ways and make sure that we stay alive in space. So. Got to work on that for a really long period of time. 
And when I say staying alive in space, it's really around the human explorer, right? So it's not really the propulsion or the robotics, although I do have some background in both of those. My real balawick, right? My my real expertise is really keeping the human alive in these very extreme environments in outer space. So when you think about the things that you need to keep a human alive, it's water, right? I mean, that's a big one. If we don't have water, we perish. Uh, it's air revitalization because we need oxygen to breathe, right? It's waste control because as contaminants build up in our systems, right, we're very sensitive to that and we can perish. Uh, it's thermal, right? It's temperature control and pressure control. Um, it's radiation protection. Um, it's all of these different things that sometimes we take for granted on our own planet, <laughs> but in space become abundant, abundantly clear how much of a need it is for us. So that's really where my expertise lies is how do we integrate all of these different types of systems together in order to keep the human alive when we're in outer space. And I got to do that for a long time, Christina. I loved it. I got to develop patents and technologies that are currently on the International Space Station today that are flying with the Artemis program. It's about to land humanity back on the moon, which is really exciting. I got to develop some of the habitats that are slated for our first days uh, on the Martian surface. And I did a lot for the private space industry um, and for life-saving technologies for the Department of Defense. So enjoyed it a lot, but had a pretty big existential reshaping of just the lens that I see life through in 2019 and really wanted to start focusing on how we could ensure that we're translating those technologies from the outer space realm and making sure that we're implementing them where I think a majority of humanity's needs are still currently here on our own planet. So, yeah. so what um, inspired you to focus now on us humans versus, I don't know what I say, Martians? <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like it was always focused on humans. I really did think that the work that I was doing in the space industry and still do uh, is very meaningful for humanity, right? It's really pushing the bounds of understanding the universe that we live in, our scientific understanding of where we've come from and things along those lines. But it was really, for me, the loss of one of my closest friends who lived uh, in Panama and a few months before she passed away, I was in her home uh, with a laptop that was providing clean drinking water to people in the International Space Station, but she didn't have access to clean enough water to keep her own life because it ultimately was a waterborne illness that ended up taking her. And so, it, you know, it just, it didn't feel right. I knew it wasn't right. You know, like what kind of a human am I where I'm living in the world where I can provide clean drinking water to people literally removing clean drinking water out of feces and making it potable to a place where it's cleaner than the water that comes out of our own tap systems but then the people that I directly care about don't even have access mm -hmm. to continue enough you know to continuous resources enough to stay here you know just it just gave me a new lens to look at everything through and, and it just started propagating into Actually. everything I was working on yeah and then uh, ultimately it was just something I was just too passionate about to let go so 
as being groomed as the CEO of a large private space organization at the time. I wanted to build up a division there that did this. That didn't really work out in terms of what, you know, what they saw uh, themselves. And so I started an organization uh, specifically to start doing that. And I founded that organization. It's what I'm now captaining. Um, I founded it and called it Yamei. And uh, when I decided to step away from the space industry, I was managing groups over at uh, NASA JSC, uh, Glenn. Um, I was helping two different universities through the development of space hardware that I was designing. And I was managing three public-private partnerships. So a whole bunch of people heard that I was doing this new thing and decided they wanted to come with. And that was really the birth of our organization. And yeah, we've grown a lot since then. And we're over, gosh, I think we're 340 or so now. So plus or minus 10. Give me some error bars, please, on either side of that. Um, but yeah, it's been really great. We're, we're in over 50 different countries and we focus on sustainability for terrestrial applications for us folks here on this planet. <laughs> so with that, has that been, I mean, it seems like a lot of the work that you were working on, I'm assuming is confidential or they were patented and then you can't use all this stuff or I don't, I don't know how it works, but was it an easy transition from, you know, leaving that and then going out and being like, Hey, these are technologies and this is stuff that's going to help everybody. And you're just able, freely able to use it and to, you know, that's a great question. Yeah. And it's a mix, you know, I'd say uh, earlier in my career as uh, an innovator, right. An inventor of technologies and an engineer, um, I guess there's a maturation cycle that you go through, right? Early on, I had, you know, assigned my rights away as an inventor, but, um, you know, working with my IP portfolio, right? I'm still the inventor of the technology, but it doesn't give me the rights to use it, do what I want with it, right? And then, you know, I, I recognized that throughout my career and worked with some really fantastic uh, IP attorneys and, and mentors on that. Got to a place then where I wasn't required to assign, right? So then you get into the area of joint ownership. So, um, right, you can you can utilize technology and so can the other people who are inventors. So that's something you can do. Um, and, and then eventually you can get to a place where when you're working with other people, they'll assign the rights to you, right? So within the IP portfolio, there's all of those things, right? And so it's really interesting too, because you can be an inventor on a technology, you know, let's, let's say it's a big, large system and you invent a small part of it. You could be an inventor, right? You can be a lead inventor where you're the majority, you could be the only inventor, right? And so there's all these different ways that things come together. And the IP process is a, is a strange one. You know, I, I think it's, I, I think this is something a lot of people don't know, but like the whole point, right? The philosophy of the patent office is, is this trait, right? It's, we are going to grant you essentially a monopoly on this technology or whatever Maybe it doesn't need to be a technology. Maybe it's a method. Maybe it's a recipe. You, whatever it happens to be that you're patenting, and you get that monopoly for a period of time, right? About two decades. Um, but in exchange for that, you 
have to share how you do it. And so we grant you protection for a period of time, right? But in response, in return for that, the world gets the information later, right? So that's kind of the philosophy of the whole international and national patenting. Now, so the, the strange take, thing about it. If you were to take that patent, right, of whatever, and then slightly tweak it, is that not already something new and then you could just run with it or? Yes and no. Um, you uh, slightly tweak it, probably not. But if you did a large enough, if there's a large enough difference between the technologies, then you could patent that as a new technology. But you can't like just repatent something that has something called prior art. So if it's existed before or been in public domain for over a year, things along those lines, that makes it non-patentable anymore, right? And so um, there are there are definitely things that you can do. Like if you are the inventor of like the major part of it, you understand that patent and, and that technology inside and out. So there are ways that you can improve on that, right? to make something better and maybe that better thing is patentable separately. I guess I'm thinking, I guess the reason why I brought this up was just the fact that NASA and, you know, people in that caliber building and inventing these things for such a small percentage of people. And like mm -hmm. you're saying, like, it's like not necessarily benefiting us. It's like, we legitimately have to wait 20 years to do yeah. something with it. But mm -hmm. Is that information readily available? I mean, what do people do with it? You know, I, it's just, it's like, wow, with the stuff that you created, I mean, if you're able to use some of it within that 20 years, I mean, awesome. But if not, yeah. it's like, geez, in the next, like what has been happening since then of the 20 years, that's like even more so. And it's like, these could be solving our problems, right, that we're facing. For sure, yeah, and and a lot of it is commercially available stuff too, right? A lot of the stuff that gets designed for outer space applications um, are then commercialized, right? So you can grab them. You'd have to help them, you know, become commercially available for applications here because they might be cost prohibitive, right? It's like if you have to make this thing for outer space and you need it to be built out of stainless steel or silver for different reasons, and we do build things out of a lot of things out of both of those, you know, it's like, okay, maybe there's a way that for the terrestrial application, we don't have such harsh environments, right? We don't have the same, the same stringent environment that we have to survive in, right? And out operate in. Maybe there's something that we can do to make it a, an affordable technology here. So there's still a little bit that needs to go into kind of redesigning it and reshaping it for humanity's needs here because yeah. their cost is less of an issue, right? I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of funding. So you can right. do things that are, yeah, that cost a lot more. Here you're like, okay, we need to come up with affordable solutions that also meet the mark, right? And yeah. so it's really making sure that you're bridging that. So, Let's get into the nitty gritty of why we're here. Um, thanks for making some things a little more clear on things like this. And and um, I guess with the things that you're doing, what landed you here in Hawaii? And the Big Island, for the most part, is where you're pretty, your hub is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, when I was uh, working on some of these initial solutions with the team, um, I was not in Hawaii. I didn't even think about Hawaii being a place that we may end up um, because we're really taking pollution. Uh, you know, we're really taking wastes and we're processing those into sustainable commodities. And so I always imagined we'd end up somewhere we think of as just a really dirty, you know, and no offense to like LA or Dubai or, you know, a lot of places in India. Like I just imagined it would be somewhere that you think of as very like smoggy or producing a lot of garbage, you know, like very maybe industrial. Um, and I don't think of any of those things in Hawaii in the same sentence at all. So um, when I was originally looking at this, you know, the teams in 50 different countries, right, in over 50 countries. And so we piloted all of the technologies. And we, when we realized just how major of an impact these solutions have for the local communities, everybody on the team wanted to build the first full-scale operation in their, in their community, you know, and so I felt really torn apart, Christina, because, you know, it's like, okay, our air quality here is terrible. Like, look at the deaths associated here, right? Water issues, uh, access to uh, food was a big one, access to energy. And I just felt like I was being put in a position that I had no right deciding whose problems were worse than whose problems, you know? And I said, whatever decision I make, some, a lot of people on the team are going to be upset by it. So what if we can come together and make an agreement that we will pull a decision matrix together and map that as it, you know, on GIS, like look at the whole entire flow and we'll build in our fundamental principles into this. That's the things that we want to tackle. And then it'll be a data-driven decision. We'll use data to decide where to go and in that way, we know we're going where it's actually needed the most, right? Everybody says we need it here because we need it here. Well, let's figure out where it actually needs it the most. And so we pulled this tool together and we looked at the socioeconomic impact of developing technologies. We looked at cost of energy, right? We looked at uh, where uh, water poisoning issues or groundwater issues were becoming an issue problems. We looked at places where um, soils had been historically very fertile, but had been depleted for one reason or the other, you know, looked at all of these things that we thought were really important and that we directly touch, right? It's like, where are waste management solutions failing, right? Or, or becoming major issues. And so we built this all up and we mapped it and the top 70 something locations were all islands, Christina. And I was like, there's no way that that's possibly correct because we have this like marketing thing that goes on, I think, that shows us that islands are green and eco and self-sustaining and, you it's know, like beautiful and it's look at behind in my picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And so um, I thought the tool was wrong. Uh, we went in and tried to figure out what was uh, incorrect, but the only thing that ended up being incorrect was the way that we've been led to think about islands you know and so um a whole bunch of islands were up there um and we had two folks who on the team who had grown up in Hawaii and so they had been the whole time saying this would be so great you guys gotta come here but I mean everybody on the team you know was saying that for their locations and Hawaii just didn't intuitively make sense to me so I had never really really 
even thought about that. And so when Hawaii was up there, they're like, oh, we told you, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we'll, we'll take a more serious look at that now. And so we decided we'd spend um, 30 days on each of the county islands. So we were going to go stay um, uh, Oahu, Big Island. Then we were going to go to uh, Maui and then Kauai. So we were going to spend 30 days on each and just kind of share what we do, learn about what the problems they were having are, see if there was any synergies, look for invitation. And if there was something there, then that was wonderful. If not, uh, we were going to go to the next spot on the list. So, um, yeah, uh, we made it through Oahu, um, and that went really well. And then we made it to Big Island, and we really haven't made it to Maui or Kauai, and we've been on the Big Island for a year. So, <laughs> um, that's where we're at right now. There, what we met Mitch Roth, the current mayor here, uh, very like within the first week of being on the island, and he was really excited by this and uh, introduced, um, you know, the Department of Environmental Management, the research and development groups, uh, Department of Water Supply, all those those kinds of things. And then I definitely saw an interest uh, at that level. But then for me, I really wanted to know if there was interest on a community level. So for the last year, I've been moving about every month to different communities uh, around the island. So I've made a circle around the whole big island um, and just been, you know, seeing where there may be interest and, and synergies. And um, we decided on building out here in Hilo, mostly um, at the insistence uh, of uh, two of the homestead communities here, uh, Keokaha and Pemeva. So they are dealing with some major issues right now in terms of wastewater, um, effluent, um, overflow uh, and treated effluent being injected out into Puli Bay for them right now. And it's causing a lot of major issues. Um, and so they were really interested. They came to the table and said, okay, we see that you can do all this really cool stuff. Could you take the waste so that it's not injected into Puli Bay? And we said, let's sit down and let's figure that out together. And so we've been really working on molding that uh, solution together uh, with them. Uh, as a, you know, as a major opportunity. So we uh, also started working with Hawaii State Energy Office as a, a major uh, green hydrogen producer for the hydrogen hub, this application they put into the Department of Energy. And in that, uh, we really needed to finalize the location. And so with the uh, Keokaha and Panayana communities, we really decided we wanted to focus um, on the spot out in Hilo. That's a sorry longest winded answer for how we end up. No, well, it definitely answers a whole bunch of questions that I don't need to ask them. <laughs> um, so with where you're at, I guess, and I know that what you're doing is good. Is let's dive into the goal of Yume, and I guess the whole concept of working with waste and um from waste, how it's going to be broken down to um, what you get from it that's going to help mm -hmm. this whole cycle. And um, so, yeah, I guess um, with just to, you know, end the part of why you chose the Big Island, um, I guess going along the lines of 
like on Oahu, we have, you know, H power, which burns our trash and makes energy, right? And yeah, of course, that's better than it all going to landfill in, because we obviously don't have the space. We don't even have space for the ash that's that's left over. But um, we also have such a high concentration of people and trash here, I would say more so than the neighbor islands. And I was just curious that with the system that you guys are, you know, planning on implementing, does that play a role as to how much trash? Because like H power doesn't make sense to be on the neighbor islands in like, yeah. because they have to pump out, you have to feed it, what, 700? And like the, the contract that we have is I think like 750,000, I don't, there's so much trash like every year and that's their contract. Whether we give them that or not, that's how much they get paid, but that's what they need to like, keep running that thing and, and like make it cost effective for that company to do. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, well, there wouldn't be that much trash on any other neighbor island. Yeah. So making an H power anywhere else wouldn't make any sense. And then shipping the trash over to our island, I guess would not make sense either. So, you know, of course we've tackled things with composting and food waste, but you know, mm -hmm. there's these other issues, right? And we can't just keep yeah. building landfills for the neighbor island. So I was just curious, is your system something that can be, I guess, made in different sizes to fit the need of communities, um, yeah. or it has to be a certain size to make sense of doing it in the first place, right? Kind of thing. Yeah, so it's definitely scalable both up and down, right? So we can do it very large, we can do it pretty darn small. Um, and so I think the major difference here is, um, Right. If you're doing, we don't do any incineration. So we're not burning anything right in our process um, for an incineration type of process, which is what people I think are more traditionally used to thinking about here, just because they've seen H power, right? And waste to energy. Um, you need a certain amount of a certain type of garbage, right? You need burnable garbage to show up, right? In order for that uh, to function. And they've built it up at a scale where that needs to be fed. Um, we're very feedstock agnostic. Um, so that means the type of feedstocks that we bring in the system are really decided on by the community, right? It's like, what is the community producing that they need help processing? That That's the first question we're really looking at, right? And it's fresher, it could be municipal landfill waste. That's a big one. Um, and we can process that. But also, what about the other stuff, right, that ends up maybe at a transfer station that isn't, you know, maybe dealt with in the best ways, right? We can also process, um, right, We can, industrial wastes. We can process construction waste. We can process plastics, metals, glasses, you know, the cardboards, which I think is one of the largest exports from the island, which I was really, yeah, surprised to learn about. Um, agricultural wastes, you know, all of these different things. And so for us, it's really what is the community need help processing, right? What are they making a lot of that is causing problems in the community? And so we really look at that. And a lot of the types of feedstocks, too, are feedstocks that are unavoidable, right? When we talk about, like, sewage, for example, right? I mean, as human beings, we're going to continue process that. So it's really neat because it allows us to be in a rather unique position of really supporting, right, solu other solutions across many, many industries 
that A, reduce waste, because that's really important, I think, for us to do as a society and the community as well, um, but um, still allow, right, the functioning of, for us, a circular way of dealing with different wastes, right? In space, every single molecule is really recycled, right? There, I would take the feces, extract the water, we re-drink the water, and I'd utilize the dried feces as a filler in additive manufacturing. So we'll actually utilize it to 3D print our replaceable components for our, right? For, yeah, for our gears, our levers, our tools. And it's this sort of circular thinking that's absolutely needed in space, but we think that we don't need it here and we do, right? It's, it's really translating more of that mindset and that methodology to the way that we approach things here. And the idea of circular living is not this like 2050 thing that's way off. I mean, as a human species, we've actually been doing it for a good deal of time, right? It's only with some of the new inventions and things that we've seen introduced into our society and the ways that we've decided to live over the last several hundred years that we've kind of fallen further away from that. Um, and so we have all of the technologies and methodologies that we need to really take, I think of it as like a hybrid opportunity for taking indigenous knowledge of how to live sustainably and then marrying that with a more, I would say, new age technological approach that helps deal with some of the things that weren't problems, you know. Yeah, because we have all these new luxuries, right, that we do yes, have. I mean, yes, we can go completely back to indigenous lifestyles and just do away with all those luxuries, but nobody's... <laughs> after you give it to them they're gonna want it right so there's definitely has to be a hybrid for sure and exactly that's, that's what I think too when I'm looking at building out communities like this like I feel like the system that you guys have um would be the more municipal like big system to run communities but within that there needs to be like little communities doing doing the same thing you know in a different you know, same concept of that circular living. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like nowadays we have problems that weren't dealt with before because they weren't problems before, right? We've introduced plastics into our lives, for example, right? And these plastics, we have now microplastics all over the place that need to be dealt with. We have pharmaceuticals. Legitimately, we're consuming so many pharmaceuticals that it's poisoning our oceans around us, right? We find pharmaceuticals in ocean fish i mean like it's just it's 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 mind-boggling the things that you know we have to deal with now and they're they're newer problems right so we have to come up with solutions to deal with those that weren't faced indigenously right so it's how do we how do we how do we massage those two different things together there's so much indigenous knowledge and then there are newer age technologies that can help us deal with some of the new problems. How do we make sure that those are synergistically woven together, right? And that's that's really the idea um, that I think needs to be adopted in, you know, from all scales, right? From, from the bottom to the top. And if we don't start moving in that direction, you know, then we, we see the consequences of that. And I think we all know what the problem is and we're all tired of talking about what the problem is. So it's really, what can we do in terms of implementing solutions that are available today and are in there in that right direction and with future generations 
in mind, right? Not these band-aid things that help for short periods of time, but at the expense of the next generation and the generation after. So it's a philosophy and applying that to technologies and the solutions. Yeah. So, and then the social side of it is convincing people <laughs> and the indigenous, right? And the people that have been like there that merging the two is actually beneficial and that you're there for a good reason and you're there with good heart and good intent and that you're doing it for the community versus for profit. And I think that is something that indigenous communities along with Hawaii face um, heavily on and, you know, have been hurt in the past with being um, robbed of things. So that's always something that whenever people come in to Hawaii, trying to do good for Hawaii, that they are truly understanding what they're up against because it's not, it's not, it's not easy um, to just dive right in and <laughs> be yeah, able to for accomplish sure. everything you're trying to accomplish um, without really integrating with the people that are here, right? And, and really letting them see your heart and your intent of what you're trying to do for them. And, you know, not out of pity, not out of, oh, we're here to save you, but genuinely out of like doing something good because it's the right thing to do, right? And so, yeah, I was, I was born and raised here, so I don't have, I'm not Native Hawaiian, but I have that heart. And I think that people can see that over time, but a lot of people, um, it's hard to just break in. So I know that yeah. after talking to Andy and you guys, um, you've been able to reach um, the homestead and some communities and have been able to have some connect connections to where um, I think you do get to the heart and they see the intentions. So I think um, that's a great place to be when you're starting So here in Hawaii. Yeah, and you know, and it's a it's a really interesting topic too because for me coming here, right, um, having never stepped foot in Hawaii before, um, getting off the plane here, right, a year and um, yeah, I think it was thirteen months ago or so, it was really interesting because for me, you know, it's like the idea of different groups getting taken advantage of is because they're lacking knowledge in something, right? And so going through this, it was really interesting too, because I was put in several different situations where I could see it was like, you should be doing this and you should be doing this and don't trust that one and trust this one and trust this person because, you know, situations. And it's just became more and more clear to me that what was really needed was the ability to assess what is, fundamentally the impacts on community by the community like the community needs to be able to look at things and say okay this is what the long-term effects would be on us if we made this decision or this is what the environmental impacts right today would be if we went in this direction and as you go through that it's it's really an interesting thing Christina because I th almost think of being able to see things through a life cycle assessment lens, which, right, LCA, life cycle assessment is really how 
scientifically I gauge whether something is sustainable or not and what the impacts are going to be from its manufacturing, which most people don't think about because it's traditionally not done, right, in your line of sight. But, you know, from the rare earth minerals being mined all the way to what's happening past cycling and its introduction into whatever is next, right? That's how, that's my frame of vision, right? That's how I look at everything. I'm like, what is this cradle to cradle life cycle? And what does it mean for the environment and for the people around? And I started to realize that all of these greenwashing initiatives and all of these kind of pull the wool over the eyes things that sound good, but there are these other things hidden behind it only can deceive you if if you don't have life cycle assessment as a tool, you know, in your chest. And so one of the things that I've been working really hard on and I think is important is to never tell communities what they should do. It's not anybody's decision what a community should do. It's a community's decision, but arm them with the tools to be able to make the decision on which solutions they want to bring forward, right? Because it's like, this might get sticky. So I'll, I'll, I'll walk lightly here, but like, some things inherently sound good. Like there are recycling programs that are called recycling that sound great. And because we separate our glasses and our plastics and our metals, we think that we're doing a good thing for the environment. But if you chase down what's happening to those things after they're separated, a lot of times it's worse for the environment than if it had ended up in the landfill. Right. I mean, that's just unfortunately the reality of a lot of things. And, and, you know, it's like people are, wanting to implement a lot of these solutions into their communities because it sounds like they genuinely want to do what is the best for the environment. Right. And, and it's like, okay, they're supporting these initiatives and they're implementing these initiatives because they think it's what's best, but they don't have that tool to look and assess cradle to cradle. Right. And it's like, how do we empower people to have that skill set starting at a young age, right? And making sure that that's actually propagating through a community. Because imagine instead a world where you could go to a community and be like, you know, we're thinking that it would be really great for your community to implement this new solar panel that we've invented. And there they can sit down and be like, okay, where are your rare earth minerals coming from? How much water does it take? Where does it get manufactured? What happens at the end of its life? What does its recycling look like? Are there any leaching concerns? What are we going? What could we be doing with the land instead? Are we putting it on useful land? Or are we putting it on non-useful lands for us? Right? What are the, what does the maintenance look like? Well, how is this going to impact other species around us? Right? What is this going to do anything to our groundwater? Imagine if those were just like in automatically ingrained. Yeah, you know, like it is for then, you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's like like that's immediately where my mind goes like how do I instill that sort of a tool into other people because instead of saying hey do this do this do this trust my technology trust my degrees trust my relationship with this person and this person you know that all that all can be manipulated you know like let like is there a way that we can instead give the ability to life cycle assessment as a as a tool, maybe one day that's a, a tool that gets passed down from generation to generation, you know, is the way that I, I like to think about it. So I've started doing these life cycle assessment workshops. And oh, cool. um, yeah, that's really what I've been trying to do 
um, because I believe it's the decision of a community what they want to bring in. And I well, think it empowers, can... it empowers the community to make their own decisions yeah. and, uh, you know, educated decisions based off yeah. that. So. And why would you want your solutions to be implemented or your technologies to be implemented if it ends up not being what is right for the area anyways? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't help either side if it's not the right match, right? So it's like really empowering people to have the vision from both sides of the table to sit down and say, this is something that we want to do. And the other thing that I think has been really important and effective is that is that we've set our organizations up so that each facility or solution that gets built up is made for the community and then is employee owned. So 150, 200 employees work at that, right? sourced locally now the community through employee ownership is owning the facility and that's one of the other big things too it's like how do you make people interested in solutions for their communities right it's like if they're owners of it all of a sudden it's like wow i want to know how this works i want to improve on this design like i want to make sure it's maintained like i want to show other people you know how it functions it's, i want to yeah 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 so those are yeah those sure. are some of the different things that we've been you know working on and that we implement internally to try to help on that community side of things to okay really make the solution for the so, community since i dove into the social side of things <laughs> um, <laughs> we still haven't got down to what you mean going to be doing okay, okay. <laughs> so um with waste the system that they have right um which we're gonna tackle i'm just gonna say um is it can or it does produce right these four things right so we're talking concrete water hydrogen and biochar so yes. we're going to First, explain how the system works and then how it creates those things. And then I want to have time to break down each of those things and how how they work and how they're different than what we're doing today for each of those awesome. things. So, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. I, I'm putting you on a timer. <laughs> you need to. Okay. <laughs> your elevator switched, um, your elevator Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. For the first part, right, we're really bringing waste in. The waste is dependent on what the community needs help processing, but inherently what's happening, right, when the waste gets brought in is the same, is we're taking carbon chains, right, or we're taking the waste chains, the molecules, and we're separating the bonds, right? Instead of putting bonds together, we're breaking bonds is essentially what we're doing. So, this helps us transform waste into essentially building blocks that we can utilize to build other things with, right? And I mean, that's the way that I like to explain it at a high level is imagine you're uh, working with a bunch of people's old Lego sets. So they have like all this ugly stuff that's kind of built up that they don't want to play with anymore. That's really what I'm taking into the system. What we're doing right through chemistry is pulling apart all of the Lego sets. So instead of them being built up in these like ugly things that don't look like anything, which is the waste, we're pulling it apart. And then we're like, okay, we have this bucket of 
green Legos that are six by two. We have this bucket of, you know, uh, four by fours and so on and so forth. We're really pulling it apart and separating it. And now we're looking at things and we're saying, okay, now we have all these base building blocks. How can we put them together in a way that's sustainable instead of a way that is going to create, right? That is coming from waste. And we, we copy mother nature, right? That's what we do. So we call it biomimicry. We mimic the bio, right? We mimic mother nature. And we're like, okay, mother nature breaks waste down and then turns it into minerals, atmospheres, soils, and water. There's got to be a way and, and doesn't produce waste in, in that process, right? She utilizes all of those for some different reason. It's like, okay, well, that sounds fantastic. There's got to be a way then that we can take this puzzle of pieces and put them back together in a way that does the same, right? We don't want to produce a waste stream. The whole point is to produce waste streams, right? So that's really what we do. And the way that we decided on the four products essentially that get made out of this is really from copying Mother Nature. Our minerals are our concrete, right? Our water is water. It's the same, right? Our atmospheres, oxygens and hydrogens, right? And then our soil is biochar. So that's really us mimicking Mother Nature. And that's why you'll see all four of those products that get produced as the waste comes in. As different types of waste come in, there's different amounts of the different stuff in the different buckets. So in some communities, it'll make more concrete. In some communities, it'll make more biochar. In some communities, it'll make more water, right? It's really depending on what that feedstock or what that waste comes in. But they're, all those buckets still get filled just because of the different types. You know, there's a lot of those components in the different types of waste, just different quantities. And so that's why we end up making all four of those commodities at each of the facilities. And so that's what we do. And we utilize... Um, we utilize heat to break some of the bonds. We utilize electricity to break some of the bonds. Um, and we play with pressure. So that's really how those bonds get broken um, and to make our different buckets. And then we take those buckets and then we make our commodities out of them. So how do you avoid using too much energy or where do you get your energy from to, to do all this? Awesome. The energy is actually coming from the waste. So remember how earlier we were talking about how waste has energy in it, right? Like H power on your uh, island comes in and it burns it, which we don't do, but it's burning it because it's trying to get access to the energy that's inherently in the waste, right? There's energy in the bonds that, that are holding the waste together, right? And so we do the same. We extract the energy from there, but through non-burning mechanisms. So when you break the bond, energy is released. So what we're doing is essentially taking the energy that comes from the release of those bonds, and we utilize it to power our system. But this is, we do thermal chemical conversion, right? So um, we increase temperatures, like I said, we play with pressures specifically to get the bonds to crack. And we're actually making more energy by cracking those bonds most of the time, not always, but most of the time it's more energy. Than, and, and it actually allows us to be, to power our own systems with it. We don't make a whole bunch of excess energy. Like we're not like a power company or anything. Like we don't make so much energy that we can, you know, 
but you make help out. But we do make hydrogen. Yeah, we leave one of the buckets of things we make is hydrogen. And then hydrogen is energy storage mechanism is the way a lot of people view that, right? So there are ways of taking that hydrogen and then utilizing hydrogen, you know, for energy production, um, for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm just saying we're like not, we're not AP, we make enough energy really to cover our energy, right, our energy needs, but um, externally, yeah, we do make hydrogen. And some people will utilize that hydrogen for, to fuel their vehicles, but there are also ways of utilizing hydrogen, right, to, to make electrical energy as well. But a, the thing you need to remember about hydrogen specifically, if it's coming from water, you take H2O and you split hydrogen and oxygen apart, the amount of energy that you need to split that is, is oftentimes more energy than you get from the hydrogen itself. So there's an efficiency concern, right? So. But you, you do that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, you do, you do that in cases where you have excess electrical energy, right? It's like, okay, if you, for solar, for example, let's say you have a solar system up and, you know, you've already charged all of your batteries, you're in the peak part of the day, instead of just losing all of that, a lot of people instead say, hey, why don't we break hydrogen and oxygen apart through water? And now that's another, essentially a battery. Right? It's holding energy in it that you can utilize later as a fuel. Mm -hmm. At nighttime when there is no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so since we're on hydrogen, this has been an interesting topic of conversation. And I feel a lot of people haven't really studied it much, but it's becoming more well known. And I don't know how many different colors there are for hydrogen space. There's a whole <laughs> rainbow of and, um, But <laughs> if you could just dive a little deeper on hydrogen and how it was created originally, like what it was, how, you know, how it is in the past and how it's evolving to what mm -hmm. you guys do now is, is helpful, I think, to people. Okay, awesome. So hydrogen is a very abundant elements right on the periodic table it, it exists a lot within our world around us um but it's often combined with other things right hydrogen likes to be combined and part of stuff right h2o is a big one ch4 we know we hear a lot about because of climate issues hydrogen is very often combined right in a molecule and so when people are talking about hydrogen right they're usually talking about hydrogen by itself, like H2, hydrogen bonds to itself. So we have H2, and that can be utilized as a really cool replacement for fossil fuels, things along those lines. So it's 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 neat. We utilize it already in the industry for a lot of different stuff. We blend it, you know, there it's utilized in petrochemical applications, things along those lines. And Hydrogen isn't a new thing. We've been utilizing hydrogen for a long time, but traditionally hydrogen has been, we've gotten access to hydrogen really through what they're now terming like dirty hydrogen, right? They say, okay, this is a dirty hydrogen. More than 90% of all of the hydrogen on the planet is made from dirty sources. And this comes from like uh, cracking methanes or fossil fuels. So it's literally through utilizing fossil fuels that hydrogen is released, right? So you get it, you get hydrogen from that. So you end up with this hydrogen that is then usable, but
but you had to utilize fossil fuel to get the hydrogen in the first place. So that's why they term it like a dirty hydrogen, right? It's like, it's coming from what colloquially we think of as dirty right now, which is right associated with, with fossil fuel use. Um, and what then- the byproduct to what they were doing or that they did do that to make hydrogen? Yeah, so uh, you crack you crack like a methane, for example, um, and then you get hydrogen from that. So you end up with carbons and hydrogens, right? Um, separated. Um, even when you even when you burn uh, gasoline in your engine, you end up with you know some hydrogen coming out of your tailpipe, things along those lines. So hydrogen's all around us, and it's it you see hydrogen in your carbon chains that are utilized right in fossil fuels. So you'll see that's why the burning or the cracking of it really ends up with hydrogen as as a byproduct, right? It's in the mix somewhere, um, and so you can get access to large amounts of hydrogen through the use of, you know, these methanes and these fossil fuels, um, but people term it dirty. And that is the majority of what is being utilized in the industry, right? Now. So that's like the normal way, right? The traditional way, right? That's kind of like where the industry was. There's been this emergence of the idea of cleaner hydrogen, right? And it's more than an idea. I mean, like there are clean hydrogens and they call, they term them clean hydrogens because of their source, right? So they have all these different colors. They have like gray hydrogens and they've got blue hydrogens. Like you were saying, there's all there's pink hydrogens, there's teal hydrogens. But essentially what they're what they're terming is what they're showing you is where the hydrogen is really being sourced from, like what process is making it. And kind of like the creme de la creme right now, the best is considered green hydrogen. And green hydrogen means it's coming from renewable energy. Right, renewable energy is is what's creating these hydrogens instead of the cracking of fossil fuels. So the industry now has a green hydrogen part of it, and what happens there is you have H two O, right, which is your water, and you need to put electrical energy in to split the hydrogen from the oxygen. And if that energy comes from what uh, is termed renewable right now. Well, then it's considered a green, a green hydrogen. So if you use, you know, solar power or you use uh, wind energy, all these sorts of things can create green hydrogens for us because they're saying it's non-fossil fuel based energy. And then you're making it from a non-fossil fuel based feedstock, which is your water. They term it green hydrogen. What we do is a little bit, a lot different, right, as an organization. Um, we actually, right, we bring the waste in. And like I said, we're separating everything, right? We're breaking everything down. Hydrogen is essentially one of the buckets. That's right. It's one of our Lego block pieces that has been separated out. And as we're putting everything back together, we have a whole bunch of hydrogen that's left over, which is green hydrogen, right? Because we have a renewable source, right? That is, is our feedstock. So, um, that's the big difference for us is for us is essentially a byproduct of this process. We're trying to make everything into soils, minerals, atmosphere, right? And, and water and hydrogen is kind of one of the leftover pieces in that. So well, um, that was as succinct as I think anybody could have done. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, for some of the people that 
really don't know the space of hydrogen. Um, I hope this has helped break that down. I know it helped me a lot. Um, awesome. When we are talking, I guess another byproduct is is concrete. And I know that's a very innovative um, concrete that you guys have. So maybe you can uh, talk about that and what it's evolved to from you know, what you guys are doing, how different it is from regular concrete. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love it. I can show you guys. I don't know if we're even on video or not, but yeah, you, there's super cool concrete. Um, I, everything around me right now is made out of it. My coaster. So I'm really into this right now. But um, this is amazing stuff. This concrete is entirely made from waste products at the input. So 100% of this is made from garbage, right? That was sitting in a landfill or coming out of an industrial construction process. Um, and so that's one of the things we like about it a lot. Number two is nothing's mined for. So there is no mining processes associated because all of it's coming from waste processes. You don't have to mine for anything. The other thing is on an island, which is really important, nothing needs to be imported for its production. Right now in Hawaii, for example, 100% of all of the cement is imported, right? So all cement is imported to the island, which is wild. Um, and then the big thing is in its sustainability, right? For traditional material, um, right, that a normal concrete, for every ton of it that you make, you're, re you're releasing about a ton of greenhouse gases of CO2 into the environment, one for one. For us, it's the opposite direction. For every ton of concrete that we make, we remove more than a ton of greenhouse gases from the environment which is very exciting. So it's not even like, it's not a product that's less emissive. It's not a product, right, that's net zero. It's legitimately a product that is where we're sequestering and holding an insane amount of our greenhouse gases in a stable form for millennia, but so, in a product that's actually useful for the community, which is really cool. Yeah, so with that, I don't know how many people are aware of the Elon Musk X prize. And I know that you guys are shooting for that prize as, as just part of what you guys are doing. You guys apply. Um, mm -hmm. But with that said, I know carbon sequestration projects are, are lucrative in that sense of like, if you can get a carbon, I don't know, broker, I guess, to make this an actual <laughs> thing yeah that it's a carbon sequestration project um because i mean like hawaiian airlines right in california or wherever their hubs are like a lot of big companies are now having to pay carbon credits right for their emissions to uh, or they do it as um good samaritans i guess like um bringing down their carbon footprint um by buying these credits um is that something that could be the case for something like this? I mean, that's a really great question. Because we don't have, I think the yeah. only carbon sequestration project that we legitimately have here, I think is like legacy trees where they plant, they're planting trees. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's any other here in the state of Hawaii officially as a carbon sequestration project, but. Yeah. And it's a really great question, Christina. Um, so first I'd like to, yeah, that it, there are a lot of organizations who are trying to remove some amount of 
greenhouse gases from the environment and sequester it in different ways. They can, a lot of them will actually inject it into the ground as a sequestration methodology, which don't get me on that soapbox. We don't do that for different reasons, but it is something that's done and they do award carbon credits for doing that. Different like soapbox, different time. That sounds like. <laughs> yeah. You have to, you inject it literally into like essentially underground caverns and um, you just monitor it for a long time to make sure it doesn't come out. So there are legitimate groups who are doing that and they get carbon credits and subsidies for doing it. Wow. Um, and for us, we didn't want to take that approach, right? We didn't we even, even on the biofuels uh, side of things, right? It's like we could do biofuels, but if you turn things into biofuels, there's still carbon in it. And when you burn it, it re-releases the carbon back into the environment, you know? And it's like, well, we don't want to do that either. How can we really make sure that the carbon is sequestered, right? And in a way that's meaningful and useful to us. And so, so concrete and uh, the biochars are really two places that we sequester those carbons. And we wanted to make sure that our business model was also sustainable, right? It's like, okay, if our business model is sustainable, that means if the carbon market crashes, if the political climate changes for whatever reasons, if these subsidies go away that are associated with that, do we have a legitimate business organization that's still functional, right? And so for us, it's like, okay, we have the sale of the concrete, we have the sale of the biochar, we have the sale of uh, water and um, of hydrogen. Right, so we have these products that are saleable that make the system profitable. Now, is the organization eligible for carbon credit? Yes. I think one of our things that make us very, very attractive in terms of circularity too is I think we're one of the only organizations, if not the only organizations, that does carbon capture and is profitable without the credits or the subsidies, right? And that was built in from the requirements that I set forward at the beginning of the organization. We need to come up with solutions where that's the case. But, right, and my CFO will 100% agree with me on this part, Christina, right? He's saying, it's silly of us not to take advantage of those things while they exist, though, right? There's no reason. You, you're, we're doing a very, very good thing for the environment, right? And there, there, these opportunities exist financially. Should, we should leverage those. Um, and so we are in conversations about that. We do remove insane amounts of greenhouse gases from the environment. Um, right now, right for the scale that we're looking at for Hilo, um, we're starting at a smaller scale and then really working on scaling that up. But the intent is to get that to a spot where we're removing more greenhouse gases from the environment than all of big island units that make the island net negative, which is just like a super cool thing. And there are um, there are carbon credits that would be associated uh, with that, right? And so, yes, we are um, uh, eligible for carbon. We don't currently take any carbon credits, but we are eligible for it. And it is something, you know, we're, we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um Okay, I know we're running short on time, so I do want to get through the other two. So we have... Oh, I did want to mention one other thing really quick before we switch. You, you're going to whack me after this. I know it. It's okay. But um, the other thing that's really important about the concrete before we jump out of the concrete is that the mechanical properties are far superior to like a traditional imported material also. Like the strengths are 
ridiculous. Like if you're utilizing it to pave a road, for example, you're usually waiting uh, for the road to hit three or 4,000 PSI. So you can open it up. The industry standard for that right now is 28 days. For our material, we hit over 5,000 PSI in day one. We hit over 10,000 PSI after a week. And right now we're looking for machines that can actually break our newest version of the material because we've topped out our ability to even break our materials uh, for compressive strength. But also it's so really, are you really telling good. me we're gonna avoid potholes after we use this? Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't really know the amount of money that goes into filling potholes on in I mean it's gotta be in a huge budget out of our city and county. Like I just it's I don't you should know get those numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's insane. It, Not only that, but like every time it rains, it's just it is and then it ruins I mean it just yeah. So hey yeah. that's that's a positive. Should for sure. So, angle for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're definitely, we'll definitely work on helping all of the islands. Right. So, um, but it's, it's really interesting too, because like it's stronger in terms of compressive strength. It actually has tensile strength in it. It doesn't degrade the same in like saline and chloride conditions. So it's actually really great for coastal and applications. It doesn't have what's called an interfacial transition zone. Anyways, I'll get super nerdy on that. That's for a different time. But I just didn't, I would have kicked myself if I didn't explain that not only is it the most sustainable, right? Also, does it not need to be imported because it's made from the waste? It's also a way, and I mean way better product than the stuff that's being imported. So, awesome. um, all right, yeah, great. Okay. So, um, since we're talking hydrogen and carbon sequestration, and biochar is another carbon sequestration byproduct. Um, could we just, a lot of people don't know what biochar is. So maybe you could, and what it's used for and how it's derived from the waste and everything and um, how it will benefit us by using it or like how we would use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so biochar is awesome. Think of biochar as like a, a sustainable alternative to fertilizers at the highest level. Um, it's something that gets mixed into the soils that is really, really needed by the soils and has traditionally existed in the soils for long periods of time. Uh, indigenous groups across the entire planet have utilized uh, biochar, um, but we've gotten pretty far away from that in the way that we're now monocropping, tilling, and doing things, you know, in the last couple hundred years. So. Uh, this is uh, a carbon-like structure. If you look at it under a microscope, it kind of looks like a sponge, and it does really amazing things uh, for the soils. It is absolutely needed. Uh, historically, even before humans, Mother Nature was creating this on her own, which was phenomenal, uh, but we've actually stopped. So the way that Mother Nature creates it is as fires kind of move through prairies and, and through forests and things along those lines, Everything on the top of the ground, above ground, right? Not underground, everything on top. But yeah, all of the foliage there and everything when there's oxygen that exists. And in that oxygen, things burn, right? And so everything above ground is burning and it turns into like an ash type of material when it burns. But think about what's happening underground. Underground, things are still getting very, very hot, but it can't burn, right? There's no oxygen, it's smothered out. 
but there is actually a thermal chemical transition that happens underneath the ground because of those high temperatures and it creates biochar. So that is how mother nature was originally creating biochars in the soils. Well, now humans have come along and said, you know what, we've built our houses all over the place. We don't like fires at all. We don't want to deal with them. And at indigenous groups used fire as a tool, right? That a lot of control over fire. They utilized it as their land as part of their land management practices. Now Not we're kind of able to do the, anything or something like that here. Just like oh yeah, and like now so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we try to limit fire to an insane degree. So, and now we're actually tilling. So we're over tilling our lands, we're monocropping. So we're breaking these carbon structures down in the soil and they need to be replenished uh, to a, an insane degree. I mean, like these carbon structures are where microbes proliferate. Our healthy microbes that our soils need to be able to function properly are need these carbon structures to exist. And we've de depleted them and we're not building them back. What is the right? ratio that you would need like biochar bio to soil? Like what is? Oh, 2% by volume. It's like hardly any. Like you don't need a lot, which is another reason I think that, you know, the fertilizer industry <laughs> doesn't love it. Because fertilizers, you have to keep reapplying, keep reapplying. Biochars aren't really like that. Biochars, you just need a super small amount of, you work them into the ground. And that's good. It's good for a long time. So, you know, <laughs> does your system make a ton of it or is it just like, a lot. A little, and then a lot. what else can you do with biochar besides, I guess, fertilizing soil? Yeah. So it works for fertilizing soils. It also actually acts as a scrubber. So, um, you know, like Brita water filters. Do you have any like thing in your house where you pour water in and it cleans the water out? If you were to open that filter up and look at it, it's like an activated carbon essentially that's in there. And that activated carbon is very, very, very similar to biochar. They're like scissors essentially. And so they have similar product, uh, they have similar um, properties in that it also likes to grab onto toxins. It has an affinity for toxins. So if you're applying it in a place where there's a lot of agriculture, that agriculture, whether it's pesticides, whether it's animal manures, whether it's uh, other fertilizers that you've utilized that are high in nitrogen and phosphorus, those things are bleeding off into our oceans right now, which are causing major havoc on our reefs, right? And it's also poisoning our own groundwaters. So, and our streams, right? I mean, we see it all over the place. It's a massive issue. The application of these biochars actually allow to immobilize those, those toxins. So that's actually almost like a filter, or like a cleaning agent. And it's really cool because it essentially will house them then in these micro and macro pores that exist in this sponge-like material. And the plants are smart enough not to uptake. It's really, really cool. So what do you so, do with it when they're filled with all these toxins at that point? Yeah. So essentially they, they sit you in your- What a filter besides- throw it into the HVAR. <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean? Like after it's done, like the filter sure. is full. Yeah. I mean, there's a point of like saturation. I'm just, oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely for sure. And there's different, there's different pore sizes too. So you have like, if you look at it kind of like a sponge, there's big pores, there's little pores, there's, you know, different size pores all over it. And this acts really the same. 
where like the big pores are good for catching something certain, you, you know, something specific and the smaller pores are better for letting water run through or whatever it happens to be. So it can be utilized essentially as something that gets applied coastally so that runoff doesn't make it out there. It's not something you go back later and you take up. It eventually, you know, it eventually starts kind of chipping and, and butting down. Um, and it's really cool too, because it actually can hold stuff in a way where microbes actually will continue to have access to it. So we have actually a lot of friendly microbes that'll actually go in and help us clear these things out. Yeah. Mother nature does a better job at it than we would. <laughs> cool. Okay. That's biochar. Water. Yes. Okay. Water. Last one. Water. Okay. 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 <laughs> we got it. We, we're going to get through this. All right. So uh, water is the last big one. Um, and we, we do two different things um, on the water side of things. For some communities um, that are dealing with sea level rise, we process seawater. Um, and in some communities, right, that don't have access to any fresh water, we process seawater for them. Um, and then the other thing we bring in or can bring in is wastewater. Right? And so some communities prefer the wastewater approach. A lot of communities are producing a whole bunch of waste. And as we were talking about earlier with the Hilo Wastewater Treatment Facility Center, right, they're processing a whole bunch of waste, right? And then uh, we eject it. And that's very typical, just so you know. So that's not like a Hilo specific thing. That's a way that many, many wastewater treatment facility centers work and the EPA approves Then the that. water all goes into the ocean, FYI, to everybody who doesn't realize this. I mean- yeah they clean it to the level of standard and then it's dumped into the water. I don't know the system in Hilo and how efficient or what it is they do, but from my understanding, you said the community is, I mean, it can't possibly smell well. <laughs> it's got a lot. It does not smell good at all. At all, at all. Yeah, we'll, we'll take you on a tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. I would love to. But if there is a, um, like a lot of rain, water, like does it just mess the whole system up, right? Like It does. So um, in normal operation, when it's not under heavy rain, um, right, you have water that comes in and it gets processed to, a, processed to what's called treated effluent. That treated effluent, like it, right, tries to meet the EPA standards before being uh, ejected. Uh, when there's a lot of rain coming down, right, um, then you have overflow conditions. And in those situations, you do get raw sewage that goes into the ocean. And you'll see that all over the place, not just specifically. Yeah, because of, well, cesspools are... Yeah, cesspools are a big part of that, too. On the Big Island. I mean, out of the, what, 90,000 that we have left, I would say most of that, like, there's about 11,000 or 12,000 on Oahu. So the rest are mostly like there's majority of them on the big island and even with we cities, when we we're talking because i'm in real estate um from my understanding it was almost like i would say like one in four homes on the big island has cesspools that oh that wow yeah i would have guessed higher <laughs> well, I mean, you're looking also yeah. too, like there's a lot of sales on Kona side and the you know newer product and luxury and they aren't accessible obviously because after a certain yeah. time you couldn't build them um mm -hmm. so yeah i mean that's a whole nother story, but you know, 50 yeah. million gallons of raw sewage going into our waters, tables or oceans a day yep. sound a bit ridiculous, but it is what happens. And so um, your system helps treat wastewater, right? It does, yes. So we bring water in and we treat that water, right? Whether it's through um, 
you know, it's community specific. So whether it's through seawater or desal or whether it's through wastewater treatment, you know, we do essentially the same thing where we're cleaning the water up to super clean standards. And then we have no waste that's associated with that. So normally when you're going through this, you're making like a brine or you're making like a nasty effluent, right? There's a waste product that comes out of that. We're in a really cool position because we take that waste and we just further break it down and put it into the same buckets that we're already putting, right? Those buckets of different things that we've already pulled from our other waste sources that come forward. So all of it gets made into our concretes, our biochars, our hydrogens. Um, or so the water. wastewater that you get is coming from streams or is it coming from households from sewer or both in this case um for Hilo it would be coming from the wastewater treatment facility center and what what water are they treating like sewer right sewer water they're taking the sewage water yes it's sewage okay so with that I guess I'm looking at um Right now, I don't know what if it, every county is different, but I know like here, for example, when I was talking to Lauren, um, she works with um, water systems and she helped bring in. So there's two big developments being built here on Oahu and we don't have like this is the first rainwater system that is going to be going into these two towers and they had, mm -hmm. you know, explored like this developer worked with them worked with her company and went to California found you know the system spent a lot of money on it bringing it back and now it's going in these two towers that are being built and it's taking the wastewater filtering it through the you know their gray water system and then reusing it for like the toilets and stuff like that right so they can yes. save their water um and mm -hmm. not use as much um especially with Red Hill and all stuff but they had to go through like approvals and all this stuff and change laws because apparently we don't even have the laws to be able to do anything with this clean water if it right. is being drinkable. So it's like, yeah. if I don't know, people in outer space is able to drink their the water that's made from their poop. <laughs> like, in yeah. the, like, why is this such a difficult thing to where we can't even use these these kind of filtration systems now to where we can legally use them. I mean, yeah. so I'm assuming that you have to go through all of those hurdles um, and change laws and do all that within the counties and state in order to even be able to do what you want to do. So with the wastewater in particular right now, I, I do think that the United States is kind of behind on this, right? Uh, most other countries um, process wastewater into reusable, clean, and potable water. Uh, we're not there. I think we have a psychological bit about that. And I think there's also a fairness. I think there's like a distrust also, right, for government from a lot of different people. And it's like, okay, uh, I don't really trust that they'll clean it to the levels that it needs to be cleaned. And, you know, I think to some degree, that's, that's a fair concern right is like who is going to be the body looking over that so for us right now no our wastewater does not get turned into water that is drinkable you know well i mean it is technically it is technically drinkable but it's not legally saleable as legally so drinkable. yeah 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 exactly so um so it's it's 
potable standard of water, but can't be utilized for potable applications. But we so can use it for ag, right? Exactly. So uh, we consider it then instead an R1 water, right? It's like a recycled water to the cleanest level um, that is, you know, recognized right now um, in Hawaii. And so at that level, then you can utilize it for ag water, you can golf courses, things along those lines. This much, if that system was here on Oahu and we run out of water, guess what we'll be drinking? <laughs> We're going to change that, that law real quick. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and you know coming from me it's it's a little bit easier right working in the space industry where we're much more used to processing our urines and our feces and things along those lines it's 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 different here right now um and that's okay well we'll deal with we'll deal with the tides as they come um but right now that water is not for potable use it's for clean application super clean ag water you know other things that we can utilize it for and you know, I think organic farms that we have to start supporting <laughs> yeah 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 and you know and it's good to utilize it too like uh in these developments you're talking about having built Christina you know it's like being able to utilize it for toilet systems you know some of the other things that aren't our potable systems in our homes is a decent option as well and um okay well we are so out of time and I don't think we have any more time for any more questions. But what I did want to do was, could you share with us how to find you, um, whether you have either an email to share or um, any Instagram, social media platforms that you would like to share? Feel free to mention them. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you can get me uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the only kind of social media-esque sort of thing that I work, but I'm very responsive on LinkedIn. So I'm Brittany Zimmerman on LinkedIn. Um, also, uh, I can be reached at my email. Uh, it's my first name, which is Brittany, B-R-I-T-A-N-Y, at Yame, which is Y-U-M-M-E-T.com. So um, I can be reached there. Um, also, uh, I'm available by phone. You can call me at 808-909-8908. So those are all the ways to reach me. Wow. So she just gave you your phone number. <laughs> um, might have to delete that later. I don't know how to do that. I don't really do it okay, okay, okay. on, on my podcast. So FYI, it's there. If you need to get a phone <laughs> Um, But anyhow, thank you so much for your time. Um. And I really appreciate it. I hope to meet you soon in person. Um, if not before September, hopefully you'll be able to come and check us out, our Eco Rotary. Um, and other than that, thank you for listening. And don't first forget to subscribe to our podcast. And you can reach us um, online at any platform, social media platform, um, or for podcasts. And then, um, or at smartlivinghawaii.org. Um, can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And until next time, live smart. Thank you guys.